Welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Murder, murder. So today, we are revisiting a compelling murder case that we covered in season one, Leopold and Loeb. And actually, Laura, it was our first episode. And we're almost 90 episodes in. I can't believe it. Unbelievable. Before we begin today's episode, we would like to express our deepest thoughts and prayers for the Ukrainian people. On my own Facebook page, I've posted some ways to help, and please do. Laura and I also want to give a huge shout out to the wonderful women in Boston Business Women who have literally made our week with lots of love and encouragement. So thank you. Thank you. In May of 1924, 14-year-old Bobby Franks disappeared walking home from school in his wealthy neighborhood in Chicago. He was found brutally murdered in a culvert. He had been mutilated and acid had been thrown on his face. Chicago had seen its fair share of grisly gang murders, but the murder of this innocent boy shocked Chicago and the world. A pair of eyeglasses were found near Franks' body, which quickly led to two very unlikely suspects, the wealthy, charming, handsome Richard Loeb and Nathan Leopold. They were scions and Ivy League bound, and they weren't typical suspects. On this podcast, we explore how well-educated and privileged individuals make the decision to murder and why. When couples choose to murder together, the dynamic becomes even more complicated. Here to explore these issues and discuss his book, Leopold and Loeb, Murder of Bobby Franks, is Alan R. Warren. Alan produces two popular radio shows, House of Mystery on NBC, where he's the host, and inside writing. He's been a guest on multiple podcasts, radio shows, and TV shows. He is also the author of a series called Killer Queens, based on high-profile murder cases in the gay community. In total, he's written 24 true crime books. I just have to say, I can't even write one. So <laughs> my, my hat's off to you, Alan. We are very very honored to have you on the show. Thank you, Alan. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's uh, no honor. I'm just a guy. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit about these TV shows and what you're up to these days. I am up to nothing. I just, <laughs> no, I write every day and I do a show five days a week. Some of the TV shows, they sort of approach you on a book you've done and then they uh, 
want to do some sort of documentary so they have you sit in it's kind of like those shows you see you know where they come and film you for a couple of days and ask you a lot of questions and then you hope it turns out <laughs> so yeah i've been doing them for i don't know about three four years now lately i've had one book that's been been really popular and that's the killing game and that was the rodney alcala killer there guy in california and that one's been the most popular as far as tv shows very interesting Sarah and I are very niche in what we do, as are you. And I'm wondering what inspired you to look at killers in the gay community or in such a a niche genre? Well, you know, initially I was turned on to the Butcher of Hanover, Fritz Harmon. And I was kind of really into investigating that and going through the newspapers and doing all the translations. That was kind of my, what I was looking for. And it brought me to the Leopold Loeb case. There was a connection, not that they were from the gay community or killing the gay community. There was a connection with another thing going on in both countries, and that sort of tied them together. And then I've kind of got the idea of going further in describing murders in the gay community because most of them are a reaction to the society that people are living in at the time. And I could see how different each case was being treated by just what that city or country thought of gay people at the time. And I thought that was a very interesting comparison, especially with these two cases. And so I started going further and trying other countries. And I started seeing that the gay community has always been put in a certain place because of who they are and therefore treat it differently. And I just thought I wanted to explore that in a book. And of course, because I write true crime and I'm into the those darker things that people do, that's kind of the road I took. Can you lay out for our listeners, we have covered Leopold and Loeb in our podcast as well, pretty deeply, but can you kind of lay out for our listeners the Leopold and Loeb case, just in its from sort of 10,000 feet above? Yeah, basically, they were two smart, well-to-do, very well-educated young men. They had the idea to kill someone, and that's what they did in a very, very basic way. Now, their thought of killing someone gave each of those people something in itself, but their thought was to kill someone for the thrill of it, so to speak. There was something each of them were getting out of it. They didn't really care who it was that they were killing. So they were kind of going for for that kind of a murder. The other thing you have to think about is they sort of saw themselves as superior to most people and above most people. And that was kind of giving them the uh, the right to kill people that were not on the same level. That's a very basic idea. And what they did was they killed Bobby Franks on his way home from a baseball game. And if you've kind of gone through this, you kind of know more of the details of how they planned it and worked through it. But in their mind, it was something that they were each getting out of this killing. And when we say they were intelligent, I mean, they were prodigies, wouldn't you say? Yeah, they graduated early and they were both sent to the university. Now, there's a combination of high intelligence there and also wealth. The wealth brought them to the university I think especially in Loeb, if you further investigate Loeb, you realize that he was not a very disciplined man. He was smart, savvy, but he would rather party than work himself into something. Leopold was a totally different structured 
was really interested in learning and, and having that education. Loeb was spoiled, was the epitome of what we call privilege nowadays. Right. Because I don't think he would have been there if it not had been his position in a family with wealth. Right. It's an interesting dynamic. And I guess we see this often when we have couples that kill. Do you think had they not met each other, they would have been violent individually? I think so. Especially Loeb. He had a need to be violent. He, he was turned on by crime and crime led to the, uh, to the violence. And a lot of the things they did together, the violent edge was on Loeb. It was his thing. And so I think he would have found his way to do that no matter who it was with or without. I think Leopold was not as much into that. I don't think he got the thrill out of actually hurting someone. I don't think that was his. It just wasn't his thing. He saw how much Loeb got out of it. And that is why he was sort of working that, so to speak. It wasn't the same for both. So I don't know where Leopold would have ended up. And Leopold ended up out of prison and living in society for quite a while. And, and as far as we can tell, he never did anything violent to anyone. It's so fascinating to me because they were a couple. At least I think they were kind of partners in a way. What was the dynamic between them? As it's classically told, Loeb is the alpha and Leopold is just kind of doing his bidding. What are your insights about that? I don't follow that. I don't yeah. believe that. I think that, first of all, we have to look at the 1920s and what gay people and how they were thought of. It was an illegal, it was breaking the law, plus they were mentally ill. There was something wrong with these people. So that's kind of the, the overall society, and that's how they treated them. And I say that mainly because you look at them as a couple, they don't see themselves as a couple. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this makes sense, but if, if you're in a society where everyone around you is straight and married or becoming married and having children and that's it, and what you like would put you in jail or a nut house, so to speak, you don't think of what you do with other men as a relationship. So I, they, they, I don't know if that makes sense. They couldn't possibly even have dreamt of being a couple that would live together, buy a house, get a car and a dog and right. do that stuff, or even think of what marriage would be. That, that couldn't have even been in their mind. It would be so science fiction to them. So what they were doing was justifying their relationship as just kind of a proclivity like it's just something that they do like you, i like drinking beer i drink scotch and i like being with men so it was kind of a it wasn't thought of in the same terms as relationship i'm going to ask you something a little controversial though because they had this sort of nietzschean ubermensch kind of mentality do you think there was an exceptionalism about their homosexuality though too for each other in other words, we are at the very, very, very top. Who else would you be partnered with? I think there could have been that in their mind. It's really hard to tell, right? I think you got to remember, too, Leopold was into it totally. He was devout into the philosophy. Loeb, not so much. Loeb was along for the ride. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, it, he wasn't as deeply into the uh, philosophy. So it's really hard to read what their minds were. But definitely Leopold thought of himself as the above and that causing harm or doing things to others would be below. If they thought having sex with other men was part of being that upper level, 
Ooh, it's an interesting thought, but I don't know. I don't know if they believed that. Certainly, it would be Leopold, if anybody, that would believe that. But at the same time, you had uh, Hitler and Nazis in Germany jumping into the same philosophy, and you weren't pure if you were having gay sex. You're right. They started kind of analyzing everything about a human being. And so I, I don't know. There's kind of a... Um, I guess it depends on how he sees his philosophy or religion, just like everybody does. Just for the listeners who don't know, can you just explain Nietzsche's supermensch theory? Uh, Ubermensch. Ubermensch, yeah. It's all good because in order to explain it, you have to be very basic because it, it what, what what really happened was he was a philosopher he came up with the idea about the pure human the the good the the perfect being and they were the specimen above all else and if you weren't that you were somewhere between the bugs animals and them and that's really very basic part of philosophy so it was not very popular for Nietzsche. He was kind of bypassed until until the Nazis picked up the philosophy and ran with it and made it part of their lifestyle. And, and it's been used several times since. But in a way, it's like putting yourself as a superior, like a purebred being. Mm-hmm. That was the idea of blonde haired blue eyes and all this stuff. They had to have the pure race. And that's what it turned into, of course. And I think Leopold was in that before that came along, and I don't think that he read it in that particular way. I think he definitely thought that hurting Bobby Franks, for instance, and killing him was really nothing. It was like stepping on a bug. You should not be in trouble for doing that. You're kind of okay, because if anything, you're taking away a, a drain on society or a nuisance. So, so he definitely had that idea. How he put himself in the above, I, I'm still not sure what took him up, if it was just the intelligence or the the wealth. It's really hard to say. And is that like the Superman? Does he call that the Superman? That's kind of how it's turned into. It's much more detailed than that. And if you start kind of, if I start going into little bits of it, you'll kind of go, why? And then it gets really deep. But right. But that's the general. Idea. In general, basically, you are the above. You're You're above. You're like a god, but you're not. You're like the perfect species of humans you're the you're the prime rib right. and the world is for you that's right that's and, another it, way. and yeah. it kind of allows you to live amorally in some ways so murdering someone yeah. as long as they're below if they were in the same level as you you would never do that right you see so there there was there was some sort of a, a standard to who you could murder but I guess what it was, was it depended on how you took that. If you took that, um, Nietzsche thought that all people that were not perfect deserved to die, then you would probably go crazy. But I think in essence, they were thinking that it really doesn't matter what you do to the, to the, uh, to the lower class. But now Bobby Franks was not lower class, though. He was of their class. He went to their school. But they were just opportunistically looking for a victim though. It could have been anybody. Yeah. And I think that he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. They had been looking that day for hours and had not found anybody that was really, he was really the first one that it was very, it looked good. So that's a flaw within their own philosophy. But I think that perhaps they didn't think of the Franks family as good as them. They might not have put them in the same class. Like even there was Germans in the philosophy that were good Germans, but they could never be the Superman, as you'd call it, the super being. There was something that they lacked. 
And to go back to the dynamic between Leopold and Loeb, can we explore that a little bit? What were the dynamics in your view? Well, you know, Leopold was the quiet, structured, very disciplined. He had to have his ways in order to survive properly. He was really a nitpicker, so to speak, very anal, I guess as they call it. And a lot of people considered him to be the soft and the, let's say, the beta. Loeb was the alpha. He was in charge and he was there. And that's only because he was loud, aggressive, boisterous. He would drink. He would party. He would be very involved with everyone in the room. He was strong in that sort of way. But their dynamic could have been that way to an extent. But Loeb really needed his fix of crime. He really needed to go assault someone. He needed to go burn down something. He needed to go steal something. And none of it was for the wealth or for anything in the philosophy. He didn't need to go mug someone because they didn't deserve to have money. He wasn't thinking any way like that. He just got the kicks out of doing the crime. And I think after a period of time, when Leopold realized this, he started to control it. He started to use it for his advantage. He started to manipulate their relationship. He started setting up the crimes. He started actually finding them for low mm-hmm. so that he could end up being intimate with them. So I'm not sure if you would really call him the passive one in the relationship. He might have been outwardly quieter, softer, didn't speak a lot only when he needed to in the public. So he might have looked that way. But when the two of them were together, he was kind of the fuel behind a lot of things. And do you think he was, Leopold was really in love with Loeb? Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. He was obsessed with him. This was an obsession and the love obsession line. I don't know where it was between them, but definitely he was up there. He planned his day totally around Loeb. Everything was what he could do to be with him. So that becomes obsessed he became where, how can I keep Loeb happy? How am I going to keep him? And so at the same time, but when you do that, you're also keeping Loeb in line. <laughs> so Very it's kind of, you know, because when you look at it, it's really not just keeping him around. You're creating things to keep him coming back, so to speak, and keeping him with you every day. But you're also starting to keep him in line. You're starting to control his behaviors because you start to learn what works and what doesn't. He got that down very, very well. And what do you think Leopold meant to Loeb, like reciprocally? Oh, you know, that one's a tough one. I think that personally, I think Loeb was really into any attention he could get. His thing was doing a crime and being in the scene, so to speak. And I think that in his mind, he was using Leopold for that. Leopold was supplying him the drug, if you will. You know, he was he was supplying him the thing that he wanted. Uh, he was searching for it all the time. He had all these girlfriends. He had all these things going on. He was always looking for that attention. And Leopold was the best at it because he was pinpointing exactly what Loeb wanted, not just most regular relationships. Nobody was doing that for him. Interesting. I think that one of the things that is so alarming about this case and the reason it's scared the public so much and still does is the randomness of it. We're so used to a crime with a motive and they just killed for the thrill. And that's was so frightening. And then to see who they were, to think of these two intelligent, well-bred men just killing for a thrill. 
Yeah. Really kind of a new phenomenon. I mean, we really hadn't seen that at this time, had we? No, we seldom don't look at the whole picture because right. there's rich and famous and healthy people die or get killed. We know we don't always pay attention to all of the things around us. And for some reason, we just sort of have an idea of killer is this person. This is what they look like. Sure. They must have had a terrible childhood. They must have had a, you know, and we have, we try to find all these reasons, but it's something that's definitely internal and we can't just associate that because they're well-to-do and they're wealthy they're well-educated they have a good family they have they always eat nobody beats them or you could have a pretty good life doesn't mean that you're not going to be a killer if we talk about the crime because another thing that kind of fascinates me about this case is how easily they could have gotten away with it and this could have easily been a crime that went unsolved but for the glasses it would have come unsolved do you think Nothing that would have connected them to Bobby Frank. And let's explain to our listener the significance of what the crosses were. Oh, yeah. I don't think that it was a mistake dropping or leaving the eyeglasses there at the scene. And it was also a fluke that they were very particular, where it was very easy to find out the few people. I think there was three that actually had ordered those glasses and wore them. So it was a, it was an easy trace to them. So yeah, so that was a fluke. But you know what? How many of these major crimes and serial crime killer crimes have been found by fluke? We like to talk about profiling and, and the FBI and stuff, but reality is most of them. It's just by an accident. It's a parking <laughs> ticket or it's something totally out of the blue. It's not the guys in the FBI office profiling and go, this is it. It's very seldom that way. Yeah, so, Ted Bundy, it was a broken taillight they got. Yeah, and, and that's it. It's just the way it is. Though we try to profile and get a really good idea of who this person is, and a lot of times what we do, it's after the fact. Or it's during, but there's so many people that could fit that, we, we don't find them. We find them by accident. I think this is just just a perfect example of that. You have to have investigators that are willing to do the work, search for who eyeglasses they were. They also checked the typewriter and compared the typing. So they actually did the work and looked, and sometimes that doesn't happen. And so it's a combination of some sort of thing like this, a fluke, and also investigators that actually take the time to try and figure it out. So they trace these very particular pair of glasses. I believe they trace it back to Leopold. Is that correct? That, that's right. He was one of right. three that actually had bought them. Or and, and, the, and the two other people who had bought these very specific, probably very high-end glasses were eliminated as suspects. They go and the glasses lead back to a search of Leopold's house, which then reveals the nature of the relationship between Leopold and Loeb, which they had a a gay relationship. How does that affect the investigation? Well, because as soon as they start to realize that there was more to these two people than just two guys going out for a beer, what it does is it taints the mind right away. They think of them as bad. They're already criminals in their Mm -hmm. mind. And so it taints it in that way. In society, that's unfortunately what happens. It's gone on for years. There's this kind of biased or sometimes racist and sometimes, in this case, with their sexuality. It automatically puts the mindset of the investigators, or these guys are disgusting and dirty. And I say this particularly because the 20s was a really turbulent time 
because they were going through the young crowd doing all the jazz. We had females cutting their hair, smoking in public, showing their legs. We had a lot of things going on. So there was this real division between either being really conservative and religious or being very modern and jumping into the new scene, so to speak. So you had this total separation in the community. And so these guys were just considered, of course, in the bad side, because they were more than modern and wild. They were actually probably mentally ill. And that's the other big thing, because they thought there was something wrong. Automatically, they should be put away. So that's a real negative to have at a start of a investigation. And maybe I'm wrong about this, but I found it interesting in your book that you do discuss how society has treated homosexuality historically and encourage everyone to read the book, of course. And and it, I think a lot of people, especially younger people, may not know about that, but it seems like their wealth and position did somewhat put them in a better place than like had they not had that because it seems like they weren't treated horribly. Oh, yeah. It's always been that way. It's still that way today. Yeah. You have that much cush. You have all this buffer around you because you have so many important people around you and money and position that you're protected. If you go too far like this, you're going to get put away. But how many times do we see crimes of people that are in an elite situation, a wealthy situation, and they seem to to get off really easy? (laughs) It's just crazy. So it's the same back then. And if they were two regular guys just working a job and living at home in an apartment or whatever they were, that would have never gone like the way they would never had a great lawyer too. And they would have never had that situation like it was. They would have just been put away. But conversely, I don't think you would have had the headlines that you did. I think the shock of this case was like these two well-educated, very presentable charming young men, at least Lope was charming. I I hear Leopold was not so charming. (laughs) You would never have had the headlines that you had on. But we, I mean, look, this is what, this is where our whole podcast is about. I mean, we still see this when the Menendez brothers killed their parents. I mean, anytime we see very privileged people commit these outrageous crimes, it always creates this very much like why we just, like you said, we have an image No matter how much we see to the contrary, we have an image of what a killer is supposed to be like. Yeah. And and the thing is, it's just human nature. We, you know, you see someone that's good looking and dressed well, we don't Mm -hmm. think of bad things. It's easier to think of someone that's not looking so good as doing something bad or think of them less than. And it's unfortunate, but I think it's very common in these guys' cases. But, but you know, the thing is, think about this. If they didn't have the wealth and the money, they could have never done such a crime either. It would have been such a different situation. They couldn't have paid cash and rented a car and done all these other things to make this crime so perfect, so to speak, and so well-planned and executed in a sense. They wouldn't have had the means. If they had the urge to go out and kill, it would have been more of a, a random poor homeless person probably on the street that they would have killed and it wouldn't have been. And they would never have. No. The first edition of this book, I went further into the mind and a lot of it's my opinion. And I got attacked by some people pre-publication about this that were, I guess, Leopold fans. And so I I pulled back and I thought, well, you know what? I'm just kind of going by what my experience tells me. 
And yeah, I'm not a professional. So I pull back on things like that because I don't want people to think I know. Because you do want to get the truth out of the book and not, I don't want to go too elaborate. If I'm going to do a, a fictional part, it'll be a totally separate person that runs through that brings you along for the crime. Exactly. But it's true to the narrative of the... Oh, yeah. Everything yeah, else. Yeah, so yeah, what's right left in this, the second edition is completely... I wanted it to be all nobody to say, well, you don't know that for sure. So I, I took out my feelings <laughs> on things uh, like I that see. because I don't... You oh, know, no. Fair, you know, no, because it's fair enough. If someone is upset by that and I say, okay, what's well, fair enough. So we'll just put what we do know, what I have print on, and then let people think for themselves. I'd rather have people think for themselves anyway, because I'm not always right. And, you know, I'm also wondering, Alan, this case is a hundred years old and why are we still talking about, I mean, there's so many cases and this case is so famous or infamous after a hundred, you know, what is it about this case that just mesmerizes us and continues to show up in movies and books and we all know it. Well, I think it's all the personal agendas of the people behind the movies and books. For me, it was showing how gay murders and gay murderers have been shown and treated through time and how the crimes have been treated. So I, that's my agenda in this mm -hmm. book. And I think that's sort of what brings these cases to light. And also our own current situation, when we look at the world today and we look at the divided America, especially, and how there's a lot of people that have ideas and stuff and you've got crimes. So when these cases are brought up right now, this, this is a perfect case for white privilege, as they say, right? That wasn't my agenda. That's not my thought, but it fits in with the narrative of today's society. So I think that's the ones you see sticking out more than anything in true crime. And it has to be relatable. I think people have to feel some sort of connection with either the victim or with the killers or with the families or something. There's something there that interests people. I'm not sure what that is, <laughs> to be honest, because when I was doing these books too, and I put them out, the first two, I actually wasn't expecting any reaction. I thought they would just come and go, to be honest. I'm surprised at how much attention I'm getting on this. And it's the last two books that I would ever expect to get this much attention. So it took me off guard. So maybe I'm not the one to answer why. <laughs> I also want to do a shout out to Jimbo Seely, one of our great listeners who actually told us about your book. He's a big fan of yours. I'm and a it, big fan of his. <laughs> me, me too. I, I, he's great. He's, he, he's, he's pretty funny too. I like watching oh, him online I, and stuff. And, uh, me, me too. And uh, he's a character. I like people that try to make other people laugh. I really do because Absolutely. you look uh, at, you know, there's so much negativity out there and I love to see people that are just trying to make people smile. I Absolutely. I, I, I completely agree. And, and uh, he's a big fan and, and we really, I trust his judgment. So I was really grateful that he told us about you and it's really, it's, it's so interesting. And I, and I love the take you have on the whole case. And it's a case that's always fascinated me. Me too. And again, I go back to sort of what we were talking about in the beginning about how Laura and I are huge crime heads and we're obsessed with crimes, why people do them, how they happen, how they're investigated, how they're adjudicated. This is one that really 
draws us in, even after 100 years. This was 1924, right? And now here we are in 22. This is 100 years later. And I do think that people are fascinated with this idea of kind of killer couples in many ways. Would there have been, there might very well have been a lobe as a criminal without Leopold. I kind of think they toxically inspired each other into this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was the combination that made it work. (laughs) Sounds like something successful, like a business. It's the combination that made it work. Obviously, it really was. It was the connection and and what they were together. And usually we're looking at that as as couples that do things good or make successes of themselves. And these guys were in their mind probably doing that. But it's definitely the combination of them. And whether they would have found someone else instead if they didn't meet each other who who knows but i think they both needed each other to do this and can you tell our listeners about what other cases are in the killer queen series if they want to check that out after they're done with this well the butcher Butcher of hanover is is out and that's fritz Harmon with his partner hans granz who was younger and good looking and kind of the the boy toy as you might say and they were convicted of i believe 27 Wow. Of the yeah. 29 that they were charged with, and they basically were taking bodies for their clothing, for the meat, for sex, for a lot of things. That's a very disturbing, disturbing case, more so because they sort of had no feeling toward. It was the same sort of way, but it was just items. People were just items to them. Mm-hmm. It was what they could get out of the out of the person, the mm-hmm. body. Fritz himself believed that the, he killed over a hundred. So it's a fascinating case, and that's out now. The future books coming out later this year, probably fall, will be covering Stephen Port, who is the grinder serial killer. He would meet guys online and take them home and inject them with different drugs, kill them, have sex with them, keep their bodies around, and then dispose of them in the park. And I've got a series of letters from him in prison. Wow. Uh, about a dozen letters. So this is going to be a covering. You're going to get a good inside look of him, not mm-hmm. just like with the other two cases, they were kind of past. And then, of course, I've got uh, Dez, which is Dennis Nilsson, another UK killer before the internet days, more of the 70s. And he was another one that was kind of killing for company, so to speak. He would keep the bodies around the house for until they started to smell. And he would sit them in the chair and he would get home from work and he would watch TV with them and eat. And uh, and the, he lived a whole life with them. They were like his partner until they were too gross to keep. And then he would put them in a cubby hole or burn them. And he did several, somewhere around 50 is the estimated one on him. So those two for sure. And I've got a couple of others. I've got one out of Canada that was just recent and he was putting bodies in, he was doing landscaping. And so he would put remains in people's gardens and potted plants. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's wow. that one's a crazy one too. But again, my point of view in all of it is kind of how society, that's why it goes through the times and it goes through also different countries because you could see exactly how it was investigated and or not investigate it like the Stephen Port one in the UK and London it, there was five bodies before they even started to look wow for, for someone and even then it was only under pressure from the sister of the fifth victim 
think I've heard of that one. Yeah. Well, it's terrible, yeah. terrible. The lack of empathy in these cases, some of them, it's just crazy. And this is, we're talking, this is modern times. Right. This is, yes. just, this is happening just recently. So it's, it's, it's just, and that's all. So it's just from that point of view. So it's not like it's, it's not a gory read. I don't get too detailed, especially in his murders, because he was a little bit kind of gross in what he was doing mm -hmm. with the body. So I think that it's there, but I don't, there's some detail, but I think the letters you get from him are enough. <laughs> wow. That's well, fascinating. We, we hope yeah. we can have you back to talk about another one of your books because this is just fascinating. Yeah, anytime. I'm uh I'm I'm busy at times, but <laughs> but anytime. I'm always happy to do it. Well, Al, this has just been a total pleasure. Any, uh, Laura, you had other questions, though. What are your? Uh, <laughs> I, I feel like I cut you off. No, no, we actually covered a lot of it. This is just a really great book. Absolutely. I thought I knew a lot about Leopold and Loeb, and this was like a whole new, deeper dive, deeper dive for yep. me. And I just want to encourage everybody to read it. We're going to post all the links and links to. Where can people reach you if they want to reach out to you, Alan? Well, the best way is alanrwarren.com. And that kind of covers everything. Writing, it's got the radio shows, it's got everything. I'm helping some people publish out books too and stuff and things like that. So yeah, that's the best way. And of course, I'm on most social media most of the time. Uh, TikTok I'm on, but I haven't been too wild on it. But Oh, God, God bless you. <laughs> well, I, well, I don't know what to do. It was a really fun place to go. It's not been so much fun lately, so I haven't really done much with it. But it seems to be rather, rather not very fun place to go on TikTok. Everyone's complaining again. Yeah, we, uh, we have yet to get inspired there. We yeah. tr we've tried. It's hard. It's hard. I think you have to be in the right frame of mind for some of these. <laughs> I think know, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, kind of on the drunk frame of mind. Yes, I think yeah, that might be it. You know, I don't know. We'll see. So yeah, the the website's the best, and I put the R in, and I say that uh, mine's because there's another Al Warren out there, Ellen Warren, that that's a foot doctor that <laughs> writes a lot of foot doctor books. So <laughs> I had to put an R in all of my stuff. It's not that I'm a snob. I just there had to be something different between us and he's he's a nice guy and everything but it's just if you want foot doctor ellen warren if you want murder ellen r warren yeah okay. <laughs> i'd be pretty disappointed if i was waiting for my leopold and Loeb book and a foot book <laughs> well, you, you never know there might be some some information and in, in how to take care of your nails or feet better you know it might be helpful yeah. while you're out there and reading the true crime you can see you'll have the best feet in town uh, true <laughs> al thanks a million thank you very much and uh i look forward to reading more and listening to your radio show Absolutely. and catching you on tv oh yeah no you you'll watch i'm not <laughs> <laughs> well thanks very much thanks again thanks, al. Al. Murder, murder.